have you ever been lost? Now, before you answer, let me explain to you what it means to be lost. I don't mean like in a big city or even a small town or out on some far out country road. Because if you're in any of those situations, you have people around. You have a road that takes you somewhere, right? may not be where you want to go, but at least you have a road. I'm talking about lost somewhere where there are no people, no roads. You don't know where you are. Sometimes we'll hear about people that go off hiking way, way out in the mountains, out west, or out in the desert, and they're miles and miles and miles from civilization. I remember uh, as a young boy, we, uh, our church, uh, went on a camping trip, and we went to this, uh, this uh, hunting camp. There was a log cabin there and a river. On the other side of the river, it was just woods, and these two hunters came and, and got in their boat and crossed to the other side. Nothing. And this was early in the morning. We heard that later that evening that these two hunters were supposed to be somewhere else uh, for a gathering that afternoon, and they weren't there, and so they assumed they were lost. So uh, a search party was put together, and uh, they searched all night and found these two men the next day in the afternoon. Now, this was back when there were no cell phones, no way to communicate. Those two men had gone out without any gear except what was in their pockets and their guns. They were lost out in the middle of nowhere and could not figure out. And, of course, out in the woods, uh, you know, where they were, there's not any, uh, anything to kind of indicate direction to you. So, if you think of something like that, you'll, you'll kind of get an idea of what we're looking at when we uh, read here in Mark's gospel, this section about Jesus going into the wilderness. It is here that our Lord finds himself in a battle against the arch enemy, Satan. So here's the scene. Out in the wilderness, this battle takes place. What's going to happen? It's interesting that Mark includes this episode in what he calls the good news. Back in verse 1, beginning of the, the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, how is this scene in the life of Jesus, this temptation period, how is this good news for me and you? And how is it that you and I can have any hope to survive in our journey in the wilderness? Well, I want to share with you today from our text three reflections. And the first reflection regards Jesus and the Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit. We notice that the active entity in verse 12 is what? The Spirit. And I want to make some remarks uh, about the Spirit, but before doing so, I want to read verse 12 again. It says, The Spirit 
immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And I want you to focus with me on that word immediately. Let's talk about this word here for just a moment, the word immediately. If you have ever gone through any kind of study of Mark's gospel, you will be familiar with how important that word is to him. He uses it quite often. In fact, we, we just saw it back in verse 10 when Jesus was baptized. Immediately, it says, he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, what you may not catch, unless you're digging really deep, is that this is not the first use of the word, at least in the original language. Because if we go back to verse 3, where Mark is quoting from Isaiah, it says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, that word straight in the original is the same as the word immediately here in verse 12. And it means what it says in verse 3. It, it means uh, to be in a straight or direct line. The old, some of the old versions didn't have immediately. They, they had the word straightway. Now, metaphorically, it refers to a condition of the heart in which there is no wavering, no vacillating, but complete obedience, doing exactly what is right, a, a moral condition. And so when we have this word here, in the case of Jesus here in the Spirit, it speaks of Jesus' obedience to the direction of the Spirit. And what we must recognize is that in Jesus there is no hesitancy. There is no vacillating. No. He goes straightway because his heart is right. He is demonstrating complete and perfect obedience. Obedience to what? Well, the direction and influence of the Spirit. And so let's take a moment and consider this relationship, that of Jesus and the Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit. How is it that Jesus ends up in the wilderness? Well, uh, I think with me for a moment about the role of the Spirit. We don't have to go back very far, that's why I read the verses before, to see the influence of the Spirit, do we? The Spirit's role here, uh, back in verse 10, it says that the Spirit came down from above and descended upon Jesus. Now, what's going on there? Well, as we talked about last week when we looked at that section, this is the recognition in a public setting by the Father who speaks that voice from heaven. And there is some type of manifestation in which Jesus is recognized as what Mark names him way back in the beginning, the Christ, the anointed one. What is he anointed with? He is anointed with the Spirit. And so the Spirit descends and comes upon Jesus. And then in this very next moment, we have the Spirit directing Jesus in the wilderness, into the wilderness. So, so we have a new section, but we also have continuity, don't we? We see from verses uh, 10 and 11, the work of the Spirit who has come down and descended upon Jesus, and now it is the Spirit that 
directs him, we may be a little bit confused by some of this. We recognize a distinction between the Son and the Spirit, but we also recognize that they work inseparably, right? Well, let me just kind of give you a couple of little tidbits. When we talk about the Trinity, it can be a little bit confusing. It really stretches our minds, doesn't it? But here's what we have to know. Our inability to understand these things does not make them untrue. Truth is objective. Whether we are able to grasp it or not, this is something that's being challenged in our day. <laughs> it's only true if I, if I want it to be true or if I understand it to be true. Well, that's not how truth works. In the case of the Son and the Spirit, we always see them working in unison. We always see in Scripture the activity of the Spirit as it relates to the Son. Think about Jesus' birth or even before His birth. What is there at the moment of the very conception of Jesus? What is it that comes upon Mary and overshadows her? It's the Holy Spirit. What is it that brings Jesus' dead body back to life? It is the Spirit. And so we have in 1 Peter 3.18, it says Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. And so at His birth, here at this time of temptation, at His death, all throughout the, the time of Jesus' life, we have the work of the Spirit, right? Remember, uh, Jesus also says this, and I think it's Matthew 12.28, he casts out demons. How does he do that? By the Spirit of God. So there's always this inner working of Son and Spirit, and we could even say Father, Son, and Spirit. There are distinctions, but the, the Trinity is always working inseparably. Now, I can't take the time to go through all of the details of the person's of the Godhead, that would take much longer. But I do want us to note here the Spirit's activity, which should be no surprise to us. And then this sequence in which the Spirit comes and descends and Jesus is anointed and then immediately it is the Spirit that directs him into the wilderness. Uh, Mark does not quote here in this first chapter from Isaiah 61. Luke does. But we've already seen quotes, we've seen allusions from Isaiah, and we've talked about how as we go through Mark's gospel, what we're going to be doing is, is seeing how Mark unpacks this gospel for us, the life of Christ, as a fulfillment of a second exodus that was predicted in Isaiah. And so Mark does not quote here from Isaiah 61, but, but surely his his readers would have known this passage in Isaiah in which Jesus speaks and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. When Jesus begins preaching, He goes into the synagogue. He takes that scroll to that passage and unrolls it and reads that and says, Isaiah was talking about me. 
And so Jesus is filled with and influenced by the Spirit. But what exactly does the Spirit do? Well, this is an interesting verse, isn't it? Verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Jesus is driven into the wilderness. Well, let's consider this for a moment. Jesus driven because on its face, it sounds like the Spirit is forcing Jesus to do something he doesn't want to do, right? I mean, how do we use that word? Well, we're, we might say we're, we're on a cattle drive. These cattle don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. So whether they want to or not, we're driving them this way. Well, what we have to see is that uh, Jesus could not act against the Spirit. He could not have a different will than the Spirit. Otherwise, what we believe about the Trinity completely falls apart, right? And that's not the point of, of why Mark says this. The point is the emphasis of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. That Jesus is moving in cohesion with the Spirit as the Spirit directs him. Jesus is, is doing the same thing. But there's another point, and this point is that Jesus is moving from one location to another. And we, we hear in this word, you know, that, that, that the Spirit drove Jesus. That sounds like a, a violent act, doesn't it? And I think that there is a hint of this because this is where Jesus is going. He's going to a violent place. He's going out into the wilderness. He, he is cast into the wilderness, not against his will, but if anything, we might personify this and say against the will of the wilderness. A battle is about to take place here. So there is no resistance from Jesus, is there? I mean, this is he whom the voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we conclude here uh, that the Spirit is influence upon Jesus and His immediate response. This is Jesus' resolute embrace of whatever challenges may lie ahead for Him. In conjunction with the influence of the Spirit, but in service to me and you. In service to me and you. How? Well, we're going to see further along as we get into this. But I want you to remember one of our key verses in Mark that we talked about from the very beginning. In which Mark tells us that Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This is the servant entering the wilderness, entering this wilderness battle. And so, Jesus and the Spirit, first reflection. Secondly, that is the second uh, reflection, is this description of this scene, Jesus in the wilderness. Now, if you're watching closely and reading the text closely, you'll see the, the prominence and the emphasis of the wilderness here in these opening verses of Mark chapter 1. Uh, we already mentioned the, the quote from Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying, 
in the wilderness, right? And then we have in, in verse 4, John, John the Baptist, appeared baptizing where? In the wilderness. And then here in this section, it's mentioned twice. It's back to back. It's almost as if the writer wants us to see this. There's emphasis, right? Why? Why the wilderness? And why the focus here by Mark on the wilderness? Well, I want us to make a clarification, a distinction. I think that the context makes this clear, but... In case we don't see it, um, where is Jesus? Uh, when he goes out to John to be baptized, where does this take place? In the wilderness, right? So it would seem redundant. Jesus is in the wilderness and then he's cast into the wilderness. But what I want us to see is that the wilderness speaks of separation. So, so John has separated himself He's not in Jerusalem or, or, or another town. He's out in the wilderness. And the people are going out to John. And Jesus himself goes out to John. But now there's even further separation. And Jesus is going out where there's no one. There's no one else. For this particular period of his life, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and the wilderness here speaks of wild terrain, uh, not a pasture, okay? Jesus didn't go out into plush green pastures, uh, places where there would be streams of water. He goes out into a, a rugged, wild place, a dangerous place, a hostile place, and it is here where Jesus goes separate from all humanity to be tested. And how long? Well, you'll notice the text tells us he was in the wilderness 40 days. Uh, let's pause right there. Now, why 40 days? Well, we recognize this number 40, don't we? We see this quite often in Scripture. It's usually associated with a time of testing and or judgment for instance, uh, in the, the story of Noah and the flood, how long did it rain? Forty days and forty nights, right? There's another uh, sometimes forgotten instance of this number 40. There is a particular time where Israel is challenged by a Philistine giant. And he came out and challenged them for how long? For 40 days. What we must see here in this scene, here in Mark 12, Mark 1, 12 and 13, is a connection to another use of the number 40. And it is the 40 years of Israel's journey. Where? In the wilderness. So there's a, a, an equivocation here between Jesus and Israel, but there's also a distinction. How would you categorize Israel's 40 years in the wilderness as a success or a failure? <laughs> so fail, it was a failure, wasn't it? They grumbled. They complained. 
And the whole generation was left dead out in the wilderness. They buried them there. But, but Jesus, does he fail? No, he does not. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in these 40 years in the wilderness. This is Moses speaking to the people. He says that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, we know that this is a parallel with Jesus. How do we know that? Well, immediately after this, Moses goes on to speak about how in those 40 years, God fed them. He provided them with manna. But he says that that giving of the manna was for what reason? To test you. Mark doesn't record it in his account, but the other gospel writers do. You remember what Jesus quotes when he is fasting these 40 days and Satan tempts him, command these stones to be turned into bread. And Jesus quotes that passage from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. So, so there's a parallel here. There's an overlapping in Israel's exodus they failed the test. They grumbled and complained. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10 to be careful to not follow that example. Another 40 comes up in that story. Remember they sent 12 spies into the land. How long did they spy out the land? 40 days. 10 of the 12 spies convinced all of the people we can't do it. We cannot go in and take the land that God told us it was ours and that he would help us, but, but we can't do it. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And so we have this wilderness setting and, and we have the 40 days here and then we have temptation. Now why Temptation. Uh, I want us to, again, make a clarification that this was a period of temptation, as the text plainly says, being tempted by Satan. Now, we need to make sure that we grasp the significance of this for us. Because it is very significant. The resistance of Jesus to the temptations of Satan, the adversary, is not merely a victory over Satan. It is that. But it is also a passing of the test given by the Father. What this means is that Jesus' victory over Satan, the adversary, over temptation and sin means that he maintained his status as sinless son of God. In other words, at the end of this temptation period, Jesus was still found to be righteous without sin. The implications for us 
of that statement are tremendous. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died for you. He died the only sufficient penalty-paying death for you. But before He did, He lived for you. And He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. That perfect obedience, that righteousness of Jesus Christ is what is afforded to us in what we call justification. That righteousness of Christ is credited to us by faith. How is it that we can come before God? How is it that we can stand in the presence of God? How is it that we can gather today in God's name and His presence come and be with us because of the righteousness of Christ? And while He was assaulted for 40 days, Jesus withstood every temptation. And there are great implications for me and you. No justification without it. Do you see now why Mark includes this and why this is such good news? Well, we've reflected on Jesus in the Spirit and Jesus in the wilderness. One final reflection this morning, and it is this, Jesus and the angels. Jesus and the angels. The second half of verse 13 says, And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, something unique about Mark's account of the temptation and testing of Jesus, and it's that he was with the wild animals. That's a, an interesting fact that Mark includes, isn't it? Uh, the other gospel accounts uh, that write about the temptation of Jesus, Matthew and Luke, they don't mention this. But Mark does. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, already mentioned, is to highlight the danger of this task that Jesus faced. It was a dangerous situation. It was not just a 40-day camping trip. <laughs> Jesus faced danger every day. This terrain is, is rugged, rocky terrain. Probably there is very little vegetation, very little in the, in the way of water sources. And Mark adds that there were wild animals there. This is a dangerous environment that Jesus was thrust into. Now, again, I want us to see the connection and the allusion to the uh, time of Israel's wilderness journey, uh, we had a passage read this morning uh, for our call to worship, Psalm 91. Now, Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses in the title. Uh, Psalm 91 has no title or no author, but many, many scholars see in the language of Psalm 91 uh, a, a, a very close resemblance to that that's in Psalm 90. And so many would conclude that Psalm 91 is a psalm of Moses. 
If that's the case, we recognize that Moses would have written that psalm during that wilderness journey. During those 40 years, at some point, Moses would have written this and note particularly Psalm 91 verses 11 through 13. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. This is what we should see taking place in the wilderness with Jesus. In the context of Psalm 91... Moses is extolling the Lord's divine protection for God's people, but we must see in this psalm a prophetic pointer to the antitype, Jesus. So again, what is indicated was that this hostile environment in which Jesus entered to do battle how do you know it was so hostile? Uh, there were wild animals, poisonous snakes, <laughs> and various other types of wild animals. The other reason that I think Mark includes this is to show a contrast between Jesus and the one who was originally tempted, Adam. A contrast these places where the temptation took place. Adam was in a plush, perfect environment with food all around him and was only given one prohibition. And he failed. The deck is completely stacked against Jesus. He's gone on a 40-day fast, according to the other accounts, we would have to wonder, even if he weren't, <laughs> would he find any food? He resists the temptation to turn the stones into bread. But he's not in a perfect environment like Adam. He's in the exact opposite. A dangerous environment, a hostile environment. And he endures this for 40 days. And he never caved. He never gave in to one temptation. The other gospel accounts give three. It would be hard for me to believe that there were only three temptations laid out before Christ in 40 days. I believe that Jesus was assaulted regularly by the tempter. And in every instance, no, no, no. Quoting scripture, no. And again, Jesus is victorious. But he's not just shown to be the victor. There's a victor who wins the victory for you. You'll notice that Psalm 91 also mentions the angels. And Mark points this out, doesn't he? First, I just want to simply point out that the angels are present the angels are present. Well, this again shouldn't surprise us. 
should it? We made a, a reference earlier to uh, Jesus' conception. Who is it that is uh, announcing to Mary, to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, the angels? Who is it that is there when Jesus is born, filling the heavens with worship and praise? It's the angels. Of course they're here. Shouldn't surprise us. They're always at Jesus' disposal, aren't they? Even in Gethsemane. We have here presented for us two kingdoms, which, by the way, uh, Jesus will begin preaching this kingdom. If you'll look down to verse 15, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but Jesus says the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here we have a picture of that kingdom and its contrasting kingdom. We have Jesus and the Spirit and the angels as opposed to Satan and later demons, which Jesus will be casting out before we even get out of chapter 1, and we might even say these wild animals under the curse of the fall. These are the two kingdoms in opposition. And what are these angels doing for Jesus? Well, Mark says here that they were ministering to him, ministering to Jesus. He uses the word diakoneo, uh, from which we get our word deacon. And that word simply means to serve. So what were the angels doing? They were serving Jesus. Serving the servant. But in no way, and we must see this, in no way do they interfere with the mission. They do not make his mission easier. They do not take away or distract in any way what Jesus is accomplishing there in the wilderness for those 40 days. No, Jesus bears the full brunt of Satan's attack and he is victorious. Again, Psalm 91 says that there will be help from angelic beings to, to the one who takes refuge in God Most High. And Jesus, in His humanity, does that, doesn't He? And so He is ministered to by the angels. What about me and you? Is this something that we should be looking for? I don't think we should be looking for angels, praying to angels, asking God to send His guardian angel, I think he does these things all the time. We just can't see him, and we don't need to see him. It would be a big distraction for us. Many people have claimed to see angels and led people away. Lots of cults have started by people who claim to see angels. We don't need that. Our focus needs to always be on Christ. We need to look to him. This is our king, our faithful high priest we read about in Hebrews who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Here in Mark 1, 
12 and 13, we see that, don't we? This is our king, our victor, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. That is our king. Look to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful to read of this great battle and the victory won for us by our great King, our Captain, King Jesus. We thank you for your gospel and the good news. What great hope it brings to our hearts to know that we have one who has defeated sin and temptation and hell, and the grave, who himself has been raised up and is seated at your right hand now. Our confession today is that this is our King, this is our Victor, Jesus, our great hope. We pray this in his name. Amen.